The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves, and the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May, and then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your paces success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Welcome listeners to the Pre-Paces Podcast. Dr. Sam here and as we come to the end of 2021, I want to wish all you lovely listeners our warmest season's greetings over this festive period. And just to ensure that I get to have a few weeks off over the Christmas break, I've trawled back through our previous episodes and picked out some high-value snippets of knowledge from a few of the expert guests we've had on the show over the past year. I hope you managed to take some time over the course of December to take some time out to relax with friends, family and loved ones. However, a special shout out has to go to those of you who are working over the Christmas period or New Year's. We really hope you managed to enjoy yourself over this busy period. Lastly, the Pre-Paces podcast is written, hosted, recorded and edited all by me and the contributors give up their time and expertise for free. If you found the podcast helpful, please consider supporting the podcast this Christmas time with a pay-what-you-can donation via our Buy Me A Coffee page, which can be found at buymeacoffee.com slash podcast, or you can visit the link to this website in the show notes. Your donation will help towards podcast hosting fees, improving the production quality, and quite literally buying me coffee for late-night editing sessions that I continue to subject myself to despite still working full-time as a cardiology registrar. If you can't donate, then the other thing I'd appreciate just as much is a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. But without further ado, let's get into this episode looking at our best bits of 2021. Our first clip comes from our first consultant guest, Dr. Steve Dorman, consultant cardiologist at the Bristol Heart Institute, who spoke to us about aortic stenosis. As a consultant who specializes in TAVI, or transcatheter aortic valve implantation, Steve was the perfect person to help us navigate aortic stenosis as a station in PACES. And we're going to start things off relatively short and sweet with the first of our best bits from this episode, where Steve talked us through the possible causes of aortic stenosis. I know we talked about differential diagnoses, but often as well, they will ask about the etiology or the underlying cause of um, the aortic stenosis. And in my experience, this is often quite age dependent as to um, 
you and you sort of have to make a judgment as to the patient in front of you as, as to what it could be and without a history you're very sort of limited in that but um, the majority of patients you'll see will be generally elderly but it could be important to mention all the common causes of aortic stenosis. So Steve, what are the most common causes that we see as causes of aortic stenosis? So, so probably 80% of aortic stenosis in the UK population is degenerative calcific. So as soon as your patient's between the ages of 70 and 85, that's going to be your most likely gambit. Now, true bicuspid uh, starts presenting from mid-40s up to 60. So bicuspid, congenital bicuspid, you do see at that sort of age group. And then there's a grey zone of, um, depending on how you... choose to classify your uh, bicuspid valves, you will see bicuspids in the elderly population, but more often they're not, they're sort of fused physiological ones rather than true congenital bicuspids. Rheumatic fever, I can't say I've seen one in the last couple of years from an aortic valve perspective, so we don't really see that. Mm. Um, So etiology, you know, we're increasingly thinking is rather similar to atherosclerotic disease. It's an inflammatory process associated with some of the typical symptoms. Um, So, uh, yeah, as soon as you've got somebody in their 70s to their mid-80s, it's degenerative calcific. That's going to cover off 80% of cases. And bicuspids, probably 5-10%. Um, But you're not... if The thing you can be certain of is if they're in their 40s or their 50s, this is not a tricuspid, this is not a trileaflet valve. This is almost certainly a bicuspid valve. Mm. Um, it's that, there's no certainties, but I would give you a 95% chance. Yeah. So I guess the lesson there is just, obviously the most common cause is degenerative calcification, but at least to cover your backs, if, you, if unsure, you can mention it could also be a bicuspid valve, or in extremely rare cases, it could be rheumatic fever. Our next clip comes from Dr. Jodie Sabin, a consultant in endocrinology and diabetes at Gloucester Hospital's NHS Trust, who gave us the lowdown on thyroid disease in paces. Now, listeners, I've heard of this coming up multiple times in a station five. And if you find yourself in a situation like this, knowing how to conduct a focused and concise thyroid examination is of critical importance. And Jodie provided a great insight into how to get this done in a paces style scenario. So you've taken a very quick focused history from the patient and now you've got to do an even more focused examination. I think it's important to take your lead from the case that's presented in front of you and it is hugely dependent on the symptoms described. If at first we go through, for example, we've got a patient who's coming with um, puffy eyes or um, diplopia with thyroid related symptoms, what parts of the examination are going to be important? for the candidates to demonstrate an understanding of how to examine these sorts of patients, Jody. So you just need to make it quite a big deal of actually just looking at the eyes. And you'll have been looking at that patient's face throughout the whole time you've been talking to them, hopefully. So hopefully you'll have had time to realise what might be going on before you've even fully examined them. So look at the patient um, from the side, look at it from the back, and you're looking for that sort of exophthalmus where they've um, with the bulging eyes, and and you should be able to see that from all sort of sides of the patient. You know, if it's there, it's very obvious, um, and it's just again just showing that you're looking for it and that you're looking at the side and the back as well. 
And then having a look at the eyes, have they got any swelling around the eyes? Have, have they got conjunctival injection, which is essentially redness of the conjunctiva from the irritation they get with the eyes? Check their eye movements. Um, so you want to see, can they move their eye in all directions or are they restricted in any pattern? And then also looking for lid retraction. So have they got, um, if their lid back um, so that the sclera is exposed, have they got lid lag? So as you move up, is their lids um, slow to move? Um, and again, it's just sort of, you know, showing that you know what to do with all of those. But the most important thing is, is also just to check their vision. Can they actually see? Can they read? Um, you won't necessarily have to do a full sort of Snellen chart during the exam, but um, at least just check that they can sort of read basic words, you know, count fingers and, and just check that their vision is accurate. Because that's the big red flag that says that you need to do something urgently if, if they've got visual loss. Again, you just need to make sure that you're you're demonstrating that you're looking for all the red flags when you examine them. Yeah, definitely. And I would also say that even if you don't formally do it, what you, you might go to get the fundoscope or you might go to get the Snellen chart. And often, or at least I've heard in my experience that examiners will say, no, thank you very much. You know, you don't need to do a formal Snellen charts. Even, in, you know, you could ask them to read your name badge, so that at least demonstrating you are assessing visual acuity in some way is enough I would say to to do that and you, you may not have to perform a full you know visual acuity assessment but gesturing that you're thinking of assessing in a more formal way uh, is important to demonstrate that you're assessing them thoroughly obviously if you've been given more time than eight minutes even if they do have eye disease you probably will want to palpate the neck or at least look at the neck to see if there are any lumps Jody. Yeah, absolutely. So and not just lumps either, but you might even just see a thyroidectomy scar. So what you need to remember is that some of these patients may have had their thyroid disease treated already. So you might see evidence of them having had a thyroidectomy and hopefully it might be something that you've already gained from the history. Um, if you can ask about their past medical history. So it, it's absolutely fine to ask them if they've had any history of thyroid disease and they will have been told by the examiners whether they, they're allowed to mention it or not. But if they've got a thyroidectomy scar, they will, they will probably have been told they're allowed to tell you that they've had their thyroid out so look for the scars look for any lumps and feel for a goiter you again you're looking for other um reasons as to why they might have this but also if, if the if the eye signs are subtle you also need to think about um, have i actually got the right diagnosis as well and always just have it at the back of your mind that you you know you you, you as much want to find things to confirm your diagnosis but also if you're not finding confirmation of your diagnosis what else could it be and use that time to just think a little bit about what else what else could we look for that if it isn't that obvious that this is what we're, we're dealing with you said it's fine to ask about their medical history and if they've had previous surgery. It's just important to say that even if someone has had a, a thyroidectomy in the past, they can still become thyrotoxic despite that, can't they? Yeah, so you, yes, because absolutely. So they might have had the entire thyroid removed and they might have only had part of their thyroid removed. So so yeah, it could have just been a partial thyroidectomy. And sometimes when it when it's a multinodular goiter, if there's been a little bit of tissue left behind over time, that can grow back again. Um, so especially if it was done a very long time ago. Um, so historically, uh, thyroidectomies were done for goiters, whereas we wouldn't do them probably anywhere near as much now as, as what maybe, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But a lot of those goiters have grown back over time. And, and so the patients may still present with thyrotoxicosis despite having had a thyroid out. Um, and thyroid disease will recur. So if they've had Graves' disease once, there's a very good chance it will come back again at some point in the future. So just because they had treatment, um, you know, several years ago doesn't mean it can't be a problem again, because actually it's common things being common, it actually probably will come back at some point. 
We've talked about looking very closely at the eyes, assessing for ophthalmoplegia. We're going to feel for neck lumps, feeling for a diffuse swelling through the neck, whether or not it's diffuse or a focal swelling, looking to describe the size texture of any swelling that's there. And one thing which uh, is important is asking them to swallow as well. So if there is a glass of water in the room, that can be um, helpful. Checking regional lymph nodes as well. I guess one important thing which you would have to correlate with the history as well is a tenderness in the neck when you're palpating, which may be indicative of a thyroiditis. The only other thing to do in the neck would be to auscultate for bruise, which if I'm right, Jodie, it's, it's to do with increased blood flow to the thyroid because it's become so enlarged and, and overactive. Yeah, so you normally only find breweries in, in a patient who's thyrotoxic. So, um, and it's just due to the increased, like you said, the increased blood flow and the increased activity from from the thyroid. Um, I think on a day to day basis, it's it's not something we really worry about too much. But again, from from an exam purpose, it just demonstrates that you know you're you're demonstrating what you're looking for, um, and the examiner will know that by listening for a brewery, you're thinking about somebody who might have thyrotoxicosis. And then going away from the specific signs, there are a vast array of more general signs, which you would do as part of a more thorough systemic examination. But just thinking about the really simple things and going through the examination of any other system. So looking at the hands, are they warm? Are they sweaty? Do they have a fine tremor if their hands are outstretched or are they cold? Is the skin very dry? Just to demonstrate that you're looking for clear differences, which would um, indicate thyroid status. Um, and obviously feeling their pulse if they're tachycardic or bradycardic either way. And the presence of atrial fibrillation, which might indicate that they are thyrotoxic. And then there's a few sort of gold star things, which I don't know if I ever actually got round to, to doing these just because you're so pressed for time but something like a proximal myopathy, assessing deep tendon reflexes and looking for pre-tibial myxedema are all sort of signs in the legs, which might be consistent with thyroid disease as well. But it sort of goes above and beyond what you're expected to do in clinic, Jodie. I guess it's more checking their thyroid function and, and going from there, really. In our next clip, we warmly welcomed President of the British Heart Valve Society and Consultant Cardiologist in Cardiac Imaging, Dr. Benoit Shah to the show. We all know that prosthetic heart valves are a real favourite in PACES, one of the absolute classics which comes up time after time. One of the most important things in this station is presenting the patient back to the examiners in a structured, rehearsed way to ensure you're conveying all the information that you've deduced from your examination. Benoit helped us cover this during this episode to give you the best chance of scoring well in this part of the station if a prosthetic valve comes up in your PACES exam. So coming back to the presentation part of the station where you will have finished your examination, you're going to turn to the examiner and you're going to present the patient that you believe has a prosthetic valve. Benoit, if you were an examiner on a station like this, what differential diagnoses would you expect a candidate to include for a patient who has a, a possible prosthetic valve? So I think really when you, when you present the patient back to the examiner at the end, you, you really want to try and tie everything together from your examination. And d- different people had different styles, but um, when I did this, we were always encouraged to go for the bang first straight away. So to say what you think it is right at the outset so, you know, to say something like, 
you know, I have examined, you know, Mrs. Uh, Smith, for example, and uh, I believe she has a normally functioning mechanical aortic valve replacement as evidenced by, and then list everything that's led you to come to that conclusion. Of course, the alternative is to be very descriptive and to say, I found this, I found this, I found this, I found this. And then at the end say, I think that leads me to believe this patient has a mechanical aortic valve. But of course, you've got to remember that actually the examiners, they're sitting there thinking, come on, come on, let's just, you know, have you got it right? <laughs> and, not? And, and so actually, if you if you just go for the jugular, so to speak, from the outset, that would be my advice. That's how I did it when I was doing my exams. Um, so I think that you want to comment on what you have found. You want to comment on the things that lead you to say what you do. So, for example, if you've examined someone and you think they've got a mechanical valve, you can say, you know, you can be quite clever in your presentation. You can say that the presence of a midline sternotomy scar and an audible metallic click before I even started uh, the examination alerted me to the presence of a mechanical heart valve. Uh, and on examination, uh, the presence of a mechanical second sound and soft systolic murmur uh, combined with the normal venous pressure, absence of prophedema and absence of uh, any crackles in the chest, leads me to believe this is a normally functioning aortic valve prosthesis, uh, for example. You know, um, and and so I think that I think that's the way to put it together. I don't. Ex I mean, clearly patients have to be stable enough to come into paces, which is obviously an outpatient setting. So I certainly would be very surprised. Um, I mean, apart from the fact that it's very unusual for inpatients to take part in PACES exams. That, only, that almost always only happens if an outpatient has failed to turn up on the day of the exam um, and they need to quickly grab someone from a ward. That's very unusual. Uh, but I wouldn't expect someone with significant uh, dysfunction that has caused hospitalization to turn up in the exam. So I wouldn't expect anyone to have acute for example, prosthetic valve endocarditis in the exam. I think that's quite unrealistic. In our next clip, we were joined by the Queen Bee of Syncope, consultant electrophysiologist and cardiologist at the Bristol Heart Institute, Dr. Ashley Nisbet, who helped talk us through taking a history from a patient presenting with a collapse. The segment I've picked as the best bit, among many, was where Ashley helps us dissect the distinguishing elements of a history to differentiate a vagal episode from cardiac syncope. So the key thing with syncope is to understand whether the mechanism is neurally mediated, so neuro, uh, neurocardiogenic syncope, um, which otherwise is known as simple vasovagal syncope or fainting, or whether it is due to orthostatic hypotension, which again has a similar um, mechanism to the neurocardiogenic syncope, but predominantly the issue is um, a drop in blood pressure rather than necessarily any bradycardia or cardioinhibitory effect. And the key thing is to exclude an underlying structural cardiac problem causing the syncope. So 
so structural heart disease such as severe aortic stenosis or some sort of uh, sinister malignant arrhythmia, whether that be a tachyarrhythmia or a bradyarrhythmia. And so when you start off taking the history or when the candidates start off taking a history, they're going to start with before the episode. And what are the sorts of questions which you would expect a candidate to ask about when they're first taking the history about what's happened just before the episode? Hmm. So I think the key thing is actually asking the patient what they were doing at the time that they started to feel unwell. So what you'll often hear from patients is that they blacked out with no warning. And then you say, well, how did you feel immediately before you blacked out? Well, I started feeling a bit dizzy or I felt a bit funny or my vision went funny. And you say, well, what were you doing? Well, I wasn't doing anything. Well, actually, what were you doing? Well, in fact, there's often a trigger. There's often some activity or some precipitant. So either they were in a supermarket and they felt very hot or they were stood at a bus stop or they had been out for a run and suddenly stopped running, something like that. So there's usually something about the activity immediately preceding the syncope that can give you a clue as to the mechanism. Things like warm, stuffy environments, being in a train carriage, being outside on a hot day, having recently eaten a meal, other things that are not necessarily associated with um, vasovagal syncope, but perhaps other mechanisms such as um, carotid sinus hypersensitivity, or in fact, you know, non-cardiac causes such as vertebral basilar insufficiency in the elderly, um, things like turning the head, looking up, you know, I was I was changing a light bulb sort of thing, um, putting on a tie. Those things might indicate a different mechanism, but um, are also very important to to tease out in the history. And, and you mentioned there about the, the prodrome, the, the <clears throat> symptoms which the patient experiences just before they lose consciousness, mm-hmm. as well as the activity whereby something exertional might make you think more towards a cardiac cause or maybe a structural heart condition. But do those often have associated symptoms with a cardiac cause? Mm. So um, the key thing about vasovagal syncope, which is the more benign variant, is that you often have a precipitant, so that's the first P, and a prodrome, as you mentioned. So that means that they they get a feeling that something's wrong before they do collapse. Um, That often is a feeling of either dizziness or lightheadedness. Um, They may come over a bit clammy and sweaty. Um, Patients will often describe sudden sort of loss or tunnelling of vision or their vision might go a bit yellow um, before they do then pass out. Often they know that they're going to go, so they will look for somewhere where they can sit or lie down. Um, With cardiac syncope caused by structural heart disease or arrhythmia, those prodromal features are often not present. And so the lack of a prodrome is actually more of a red flag than if there is a a, a clear precipitant, and particularly a postural element to it, um, and also those prodromes. Um, but with, with cardiac syncope due to structural heart disease or arrhythmia, then quite often those things are lacking. Next up, we have Dr. Hamish Morrison, a neurology registrar in the Sevendinary who joined us to discuss seizures. And while we discussed epilepsy, Hamish also gave us a really good rundown of the types of medical problems which can also cause seizures. This is truly essential listening given how often seizures come up on the acute medical take. 
We also discuss some of the features which are differentiators in a history between a syncopal episode and a seizure. As, as Hamish has just said, the, the differentiating factors are, are clear that these positive phenomena are very different from the types of symptoms you would find in a patient who's had a vasovagal episode or, or a cardiac collapse. But, but asking about the days preceding the event can often um, provide uh, clues to the reason why they've had a seizure. And one adage I, um, I came across uh, was that people who experience seizures may develop epilepsy, but not everyone who has a seizure is epileptic. And there are, there are many different causes of a seizure which are unrelated to epilepsy. And um, so, Hamish, what sort of uh, other symptoms could we ask about which may indicate a, um, a distinct etiology of, of a seizure? Yeah, that's a really good point, Sam. Yeah, and I think you know, what you're describing really is um, what we would call in neurology a provoked seizure, um, and particularly in someone without a history of seizures, so without a history suggestive of, of epilepsy. The sort of things that I would think about would be infective sources in this case, so maybe something specific to the CNS, such as um, um, uh, meningitis, so meningism, headache, fever, or it could be a more general infection in someone who perhaps got a, a more vulnerable brain, thinking of the, the elderly patient with dementia, perhaps. Electrolyte abnormalities, so a recent history of diarrhea or vomiting would be important. Drug use, thinking of uh, uh, illicit drugs and also alcohol, which can lower the seizure threshold. In terms of other possible triggers uh, that may either bring out seizures in someone with known epilepsy or in someone who's not had a seizure before, perhaps a new presentation of epilepsy, think of things such as uh, flashing lights, although that is less common than you think, um, sleep deprivation or perhaps stress. Often in a, a, an adolescent who perhaps is, you're seeing the, pre the first presentation of uh, juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. We're often seeing these patients for the first time when they've um, moved to come to university. So they're in a new environment, having late nights uh, or drinking more alcohol. And that's uh, led to their presentation. Other common things I perhaps haven't mentioned, hypoglycemia, which uh, can in itself cause seizures and also can trigger seizures in someone with a preponderance for seizures. Thinking about other important things, um, new presentations of space-occupying lesions. So particularly if it, teasing out if there's any headache in the history, particularly a headache suggestive of raised intercranial pressure. So a headache which would worsen on a supine posture, headache worse in the morning, perhaps associated with, with, uh, with vomiting or any other or focal neurological signs or symptoms. And as well, if there's been any recent history of head trauma, particularly in someone on um, anticoagulants. Thanks, Hamish. I think this is really interesting because... Like you just said, a good example there of um, the example you gave of a, of a student who's gone to university and, and has a combination of factors which are sort of coming together to give an, an overwhelming um, preponderance for someone to have a seizure. So just in, in the context of PACES, you may not consider asking about those factors in a patient, in a young patient who's coming with a seizure, but actually you know, late nights and um, more drinking more alcohol than usual are, are really important to ask about in um in patients presenting with seizures. So yeah, really good example there of how um, a cluster of um, risk factors can come together. So that's covered sort of before the before the episode. So you've got immediately before the episode and then sort of the um, symptoms in the preceding days. And then what sort of things would you ask about during the procedure? And, and I guess this is difficult in paces because quite often you rely on a collateral history where a witness might not be available, but it's still important to ask them um, if anyone's told the patient what they saw as the patient was um, 
sort of mid episode. So what sort of things would, would you ask them about that happened during the episode? Um, yeah, absolutely, Sam. Often, even though if someone really has had an epileptic seizure, they're unlikely to be able to give you a, a first-hand account of what they experienced, um, other than perhaps the prodrome. If the seizure has been witnessed, they're more than likely have been described um, or been told by um, a bystander what happened to them during the event, and they'll probably remember that description. In particular, things I want to you, you'd be interested to know about would be the would be the the, the, the tone at the time of onset. Particularly, you know, if they're described as going stiff or rigid rather than going sort of floppy and flaccid. So in a patient who's had a, a vasovagal um, collapse or a seizure, there may be a description of shaking. Uh, however, usually if you, you can tease apart um, the brief twitching or shaking of the limbs, which, you, which, which uh, are common after a vasovagal episode in comparison to the usually the, the more uh, prolonged or sustained um, and rhythmical shaking seen in a tonic-clonic seizure. One of the symptoms which we, um, which is often a matter of controversy in in patients who've had a transient loss of consciousness, is is incontinence. And last episode, Dr. Nisbet said um, that urinary incontinence isn't that specific for seizure-like activity. But is there any sort of, well, first of all, do you agree with that? And then secondly, is there sort of any greater significance of fecal incontinence rather than urinary incontinence? Yeah, I think I, w- I would agree with that. I, I don't find uh, urinary incontinence in the history to be a great discriminator between an epileptic fit and another on another cause of collapse. Um, I think I think it can be it can be present in both. Um, there is said to be a, a greater um, uh, significance or specificity for, for fecal incontinence in epileptic seizures, but I would say generally we, we don't see it all that often. In terms of other things that do help discriminate. Um, tongue biting is is one of those things, and in particular, uh, a lateral tongue bite we would see is quite a specific uh, marker for an epileptic seizure versus another cause of collapse. And on that note, anterior or sort of tip of the tongue bites are much less specific and quite common in in, in all forms of collapse. So it's really the, a significant lateral tongue bite that you're looking for. Perfect. Yeah, tongue biting obviously a really good discriminator for um for seizure seizure activity versus collapse. Yeah. And again, this is something which is probably more relevant in real life than in paces, but it's um, always important to ask about sort of immediate first aid and what was done at the time just to make sure, you know, they didn't have any sort of additional injuries. But in, in the context of paces, this is probably going to be um, quite quite unlikely to have any other, you know, significant injuries, um, given that, you know, you're going to be taking the history from the patient most likely. And then after the episode, and this this is largely one of the most characteristic discriminators between a seizure versus a collapse of other cause. And that's a postictal state, Hamish. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think a true postictal phase is definitely a, a helpful discriminator if, if you can obtain that history clearly. That's very helpful in guiding you towards seizure. One thing I would caveat this with is often someone can be a little confused uh, initially on coming around from another form of collapse uh, and that can be mistaken for being postic- the postictal phase, but typically, you know, the the confusion uh, and altered behaviour following a seizure will tend to last sort of several minutes or longer, perhaps in some patients, whereas the confusion um, or disorientation that occurs after a cardiogenic collapse is usually much briefer. You know, typically in someone who's had a, a generalised tonic-clonic seizure, um, there will usually be amnestic for. Also, period of the postictal phase is as well as the prodromal phase. 
where someone who's had a, a cardiac uh, syncope, perhaps, will, will often be able to tell you almost exactly what was happening right up until the point of collapse. One, one additional uh, sign which can be seen following a, uh, following a seizure um, is that of tosparesis, which is a, a focal neurological weakness, which can last up to 48 hours following a seizure. Usually the patient will have a history of tosparesis, which is helpful in determining whether, whether this is a post-seizure phenomena rather than something to concern you for um, uh, a new space occupying lesion. And our last clip of this episode features Dr. Luke Bonetto, consultant neuro-ophthalmologist at Southmead Hospital in North Bristol. Luke joined us to talk about optic neuropathy. And just as with thyroid disease, where it's important to be able to examine a Station 5 patient in a rapid but comprehensive fashion in a short period of time, Luke gave us a fantastic run-through of all the vitally important things to include in an examination of a Station 5 patient presenting with symptoms suggestive of an optic neuropathy. Perfect. So moving on from the history, and we've gone through a number of specific causes there, along with the sorts of questions you should ask for each cause. After the history, you'll be expected to examine these patients. Now, I know many medical trainees find the approach to eye examination very tricky, but not least in cases where you've literally got a matter of minutes to um, identify the, the person's signs. So what do you think are the absolute essentials um, to examine in a patient presenting with symptoms suggestive of an optic neuropathy? Uh, I, I don't envy your PACES candidates. I should say I, I managed to avoid PACES by uh, I got my MRCP on the last round of the, the previous format. So, uh, so I don't fancy minutes to try and do this. But uh... <laughs> just in terms of covering the absolute essentials to demonstrate that you've got a good knowledge of this condition. Okay. So I guess, you know, if we divide it up into the afferent and the efferent system, the afferent system, the information going into their brain, uh, then the things that I want to look at is I want to measure their visual acuity, uh, their central visual acuity. If you're allowed to do that in the examiners, it's usually a Snellen chart, but you can be creative, uh, uh, you know, in terms of can you see this or, or uh, uh, read the time on my clock or something like that. Um, uh, uh, that's obviously important to assess the central visual function, which is usually down in an optic neuropathy. Um, the quick test of colour vision would just be if you've got an item of red and just get them to look at it with each eye in turn and say, is it the same red? And then if they say, oh, no, no, actually, it's bright red in that one, it's a dark red in this one, that's very suggestive of most optic uh, neuropathies. And um, then you'll want to have a look at the visual field. And I usually do this in finger counting in the four quadrants. So their eye versus my eye left versus uh, right versus left, left versus right. Um, and I do either one finger or two finger, no thumbs, because that's going to be put a thumb and two fingers. Is that three fingers or is that two fingers? You can only really pick out really big homonymous defects with uh, visual fields to confrontation, which is why we have machines that the patients spend, you know, five minutes an eye on. We don't have, we haven't even, didn't invent those because we were really good at doing visual fields to confrontation. So you're just picking out something really obvious with that. Uh, then, then probably would move on to the pupils. So obviously, first of all, you've got to be uh, confident that you've not got any uh, efferent defect, like a third nerve pulse. You can still do a relative afferent pupillary defect in those cases. 
Um, but the relative afferent pupillary defect is the, you know, really, really good objective test for an optic neuropathy. Um, it's good because it's very specific for optic nerve damage. So you could have a retinal problem that caused uh, a relative afferent pupillary defect, but it should be, you know, a really big, obvious you know, like toxoplasma or something really awful at the back of the eye to cause that with a retinopathy. So that's why it's useful. And people get confused about relative afferent pupillary defect. Just think of it as a competition between the optic nerves. You know, right, I'm going to see which optic nerve can pick up this light better. And the way that I'm going to do it is seeing which one causes the pupils to constrict the most. Okay, because the, the way you're wired up in your brainstem is the pupils have no idea which eye the light's gone in. There's no way that you could tell when you get to the pupil level. So that's why they constrict the same, whether you put it in the right or the left. You basically shine the light in one eye and then go across to the other eye. You do not need to avoid the nose. There's a sort of popular uh, belief that the nose is photosensitive and that you need to swing the torch down underneath the nose, but that just delays the time for your torch getting across. So it gives time for the other optic, uh, other pupil to dilate, and then you might miss the relative average. So one eye, and then swing it a shortest distance across to the other eye. Make sure they don't fix on the light because that will cause the pupil to constrict with a near response. And then try to, I try to count as I do it. So I only give each eye the same amount of light. So usually as you count to three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And that's because sometimes you will tend to concentrate on the eye of interest and you can bleach the photoreceptors in that eye and you can create a relative afferent pupillary defect. So it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you get two goes at the relative afferent pupillary defect. If you obviously move from the good eye to the bad or the bad optic nerve, you, what you're looking for is to see as you shine the light in that pupil, the pupil dilates a little bit. But you've also got another go. It's when you swing it back to the good eye, if that one constricts a bit, so every time you swing, you're looking for information, not just when you're going to the eye of interest. And sometimes it's a sort of, you know, the subtle ones, you know, you keep on doing it. <laughs> you know, it's like a sort of a test where you can keep on running the test and you get more and more suspicion uh, with, with the number of swings. But obviously, if you've only got two minutes or so, you're probably only going to do two or three swings. Yeah. And just going back very quickly to the visual acuity side of things, usually in those stations, they will have um, some of the three meter Snellen charts. I know it can be difficult, like we've said, to fit in that much in, in such a short time frame, but some examiners will expect you to perform the visual acuity assessment using the three meter chart. So I think, I think, I think it's really good too, if you can, because it's just, you know, that they're all worried about being rung at, two in the morning and say what's the visual acuity saying oh well they could sort of read the sun uh, front page you know it, it just doesn't come across so well as a sort of a six over five or whatever the thing I would say is don't let them read from the top uh, just say what's the lowest line you can see on this chart well okay they usually say what's the lowest line you can read clearly and they will then tell you the line that they can't read uh, or try to, you know, but uh, but if you start, you know, sort of aid and, and um, you'll waste time. Again, this is something which is specific to paces, but performing fundoscopy is probably something which most candidates and most listeners listening to this would probably dread. And in my personal experience and from what I have 
heard from the majority of my colleagues, often if you reach for the fundoscope, the examiners will wave you down, so to speak, and say, oh, you know, you don't need to. But I have also more recently heard the opposite where they do expect you to perform it. So what sort of findings would you expect to see on performing fundoscopy on these patients? So optic neuropathy, uh, three possibilities. You get a normal looking optic nerve head. And that means that if they've got an optic neuropathy, the problem's further back in the nerve, not the visible portion. So this would be a retrobulbar optic neuritis. So they say, you know, the patient sees nothing, doctor sees nothing. Uh, Obviously give it time and then that will become pale. So it's basically, it could be normal, it could be swollen, which means the optic nerve is damaged at or around the optic nerve head, or it could be pale, which means it's been irrecoverably damaged at some point in the past. One thing which probably take too much time in paces, but you should definitely mention that you would do if given more time. And like you said, men- mentioned about testing with a red piece of clothing or something red, which is um, in the room. If you don't have that available, always mention using the Ishihara plates, which I, I guess is the most formal way of, of, of testing colour perception between um, between affected eyes. Well, there's the Mantle 100 hue test, but you'd be forgiven for not squeezing that in in a couple of minutes. The Ishihara plates are really designed to distinguish between uh, red, green and blue, yellow um, congenital colour blindness. But we can just count, you know, you can just get them to sort of count the number of uh, number of different plates that they can see. So there we have it, guys. Those are some of my best bits from the first part of 2021. Join us next time for a second episode, including even more of the best bits from the past year. But don't worry, after that, we will be back on the content wagon with some great episodes coming up with some fantastic guests, including topics such as myasthenia gravis, pregnancy in paces and inflammatory bowel disease so watch out for those coming early in the new year but for now we are just about out of time we hope you've enjoyed this episode looking back at some of our best bits and we will see you next time on the pre-paces podcast